0: pregnancy and taking care of my wife, taking care of my family, man, full-time job, full-time school, so it's been a little bit more you know, so difficult because I don't want to seem like this is a chore Put the podcast up on a once a week basis. That's been really, really trying, but we're gonna try to work that out, man, and see what we can do. Um, Before I even dig into uh, episode eight, I want to say thank you to everyone, man, uh, for your prayers, your support, your concern. Um, all of that man. It's too many of you guys to actually shout all of you out. But some of you guys have been so incredibly gracious. Uh, and pushed. I mean hitting me a big out with a podcast, bro. a podcast. I uh, thank you. Uh, this is again Page terms. I'm your host, Elgin Bailey. Uh, this is season two. Season two, we are dealing with uh, New York Times 2016, one of their ten best books. It's a New York Times bestseller, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, by sociologist Matthew Desmond. spent an extended length of time with eight families in Milwaukee, as these folks each struggled to keep a roof over their head. If you remember, man, in episode number seven, in episode number seven, we met Doreen. themselves in a, a real, real, real bad situation, so we're going to pick up, pick right back up here, man, um, in chapter 6, titled, Rat, we're still in chapter 6, this is episode number 8 of Peg Podcast, and the text reads, Hinksons began looking for a new housing soon after moving into Sharina's place, calling the number on rent sides and leafing through apartment listings in the Redbook. A free glossy found that most inner city stores but their precious previous move had left them exhausted, and Doreen's fresh eviction record wasn't helping matters. Soon moved into the second floor unit upstairs, and everyone breathed easier for a time. Fall arrived, and the Hinksons settled into the neighborhood, but always considered their stay temporary, even as the months rolled by, one after another. It wasn't like on the 32nd, where Doreen had made a point to get to know the neighbors and watch over the neighborhood boys. At the time of Patricia's eviction, six months after the family had relocated to the 18th and right, the only neighbor Doreen knew by name was Lamar, and his name was all she really knew about I don't even go to nobody's house like I used to Doreen said about the neighborhood. I used to get up and go, visit. now I just stand around. When winter set in, weeks would pass without the reef so much as stepping outside. The Public peace, the sidewalk and street peace of the city, is not kept primarily by the police necessarily as police are. It is kept primarily by the intricate, almost unconscious network of voluntary controls and standards among the people themselves, and enforced by the people themselves so wrote jane jacobs in the death of his life on great american cities jacobs believed that a prerequisite for this type of healthy engaged community was the presence of people who simply were present who looked after the neighborhood she had been proved right disadvantaged neighborhoods with higher levels of collective efficacy. Stuff of loosely linked neighbors who trust one another and share experiences about how to make their community better have lower crime rates. A single eviction could destabilize multiple city blocks. Not only the block from which the family was evicted, but also the block to which they be grudgingly relocated. In this way, displacement contributed directly to what Jacobs called perpetual slums churning environments with high rates of turnover and even higher rates of resentment and disinvestment. The key link in a per- perpetual slump is that too many people move out of it too fast, and in the meantime, dream of getting out. 32nd Street lost a steadying presence, someone who loved and invested in their neighborhood, who contributed to making the block safer, but Wright Street didn't gain one. Ruby, CJ, and Mikey had kept on their school uniforms, oversized white t shirts, and black jeans, while they took turns at the front window watching for the lump truck three times a week a local church delivered sack lunches to the neighborhood this day Ruby was the one to spot it lunch truck she yelled bounding outside with the others the kids returned with their bag for everyone they passed them out without peeking inside because that would ruin the surprise green apples were swapped for red ones fritos for sun chips apple juice for fruit juices I'll give you Two juiced and touch her off of Ruby. For an Oreo cake, Ruby asked. After thinking it over, she shook her head no. Excuse me, Ruby, you suck. Ruby flashed a white smile and started bouncing from leg to leg. Her rib was wearing off. Some nights after the had dissipated completely. She and Mikey would off the mattress in the room, Natasha Powell. At 19, she was six years older and older, but acted more like the oldest child than the younger adult. While Patrice had really just begun adolescence when she found herself a mother, Natasha balked at the thought of having kids. They messy, they dirty, she said, and you don't know if they're going to be ugly or pretty, so hell no. I'm living free and independent. Natasha partied with the boys at Lamar's house, and in the summertime, saw her around the neighborhood barefoot. She was light-skinned like Patrice, red-boned, even though they had different fathers. Men in cars would slow down and crane their necks. Sometimes old ladies would slow down, too, and offer Natasha's shoes with penny filled eyes. Sex. They inked and settled into their sack there and began a conversation about words they had a hard time pronouncing. Royal. Turquoise. Anything was a welcome distraction from the stench and state of the house. In the kitchen and the bathroom, things had gotten so bad that Marie Doreen was considering calling work resolved to fix a problem he often left behind discarded materials which Doreen and patrice took as a sign to suspect it's like you're his maid said patrice whether Quentin intentionally behaved this way to discourage tenants from falling him the housing prices the problem was hard to say but it had an effect so not only did Quentin and Sharina operate a slum or slum buildings but they also Mistreated them. So when they called got called for <laughs> to fix stuff, they would come over and half-hast it, And then deliberately leave materials behind so the, the tenants wouldn't call no more. <sighs> when Doreen phoned Shereen to complain, she often found herself being complained about. Every time we call about something, Doreen said, she tries to blame it on us and see me work. it. I'm tired of hearing it, so we just fix it every time it breaks. Fixing it often meant getting up and getting on without it. The sink was the first thing to get stopped up. After it stayed that way for days, Ruby and Patrice took to washing dishes in the bathtub, but they weren't able to catch all the food scraps from going down the drain. And pretty soon, concrete colored water was collecting in the bathtub too. So the family began boiling water on the kitchen stove and taking sponge baths. Afterwards, someone would dump the pot of water in the toilet and grab the plunger, causing a small colony of roaches to scamper to another hiding spot. She had to plunge hard. It usually took a good five minutes before the toilet would flush. When the toilet quit working, the family began placing soil tissues in a plastic bag to be tossed with the trash. Damn. When Doreen finally called, did call Sharina about the plumbing, she could not get a hold of her. After a week of voicemail, Sharina called back, explaining that she and Quentin had been away in Florida. They had recently purchased a three bedroom vacation condo there. In response to Doreen's complaint about the plumbing, Sharina reminded her tenant that she was breaking the terms of release by allowing Patricia and her children to live there. To Patricia, it was deja vu. Before moving upstairs, she had inspected the unit. It needed a lot of work. The limp gray carpet was worn thin and filthy. The ceiling in the kids' bedroom was drooping. The balcony door was unhinged. And the balcony itself looked like it would collapse if they tossed a sack of flour water. But Sharina promised to attend to these things. Landlords were allowed to rent units with property code violations. Even units that did not meet basic habitability requirements. As long as they were upfront about the problems. So, if you were a desperate, poor tenant, a landlord can rent you a trash-ass apartment. Trash, dirty, filthy, rodent-infested, roach-infested property. They can rent it to you as long as they tell you up front that everything is broken. Patrice took Sharina at her word and handed her 1000 $100, the first month's rent and security deposit, but the repairs came slowly. Patrice's bathtub stopped draining, but Sharina didn't return her calls. At that time, she and Quint were away on vacation. Patrice went two months without a working sink. When Patrice discovered a, discovered a large hole in one of the walls, Sharina gave her a pamphlet about how to keep her children safe from lead paint. When the door came off the hinges, she sent her dope man or she had crackheads going by the house to fix things family. Patrice complained, things came to a head. I'm gonna get my attorney and sue you, Patrice shouted. Go ahead, Sharina laughed. But my money is longer than yours. If I'm giving you my money, why ain't my stuff fixed? The next month patrice tried a different approach now before i even read this different approach man i can tell you what this approach is going to be she's going to try to withhold some of her rent from Serena, thinking that if she didn't pay that david was going to come through and fix her rent. now i'm going to tell you that'll work but here's what patrice did the next month patrice tried a different approach if wouldn't respond when the rent was paid, maybe she would respond when it wasn't. Patrice gave Sharina half the rent and said she would get the rest after she completed the promised repairs. As it was, the rent took 65% of Patrice's income. It was hard to give up such a big chunk of her paycheck to live in such conditions. That's very fair. But I'm going to tell you now, this plan never works, family. Okay, here it goes. Patricia's plan backfired. Sharina refused to work in Patricia's place unless she delivered her rent full. To Patricia, it felt like a catch-22, because it was. If she was paid up, Sharina often didn't answer the phone until the first of the month rolled around again. If she withheld rent, Sharina refused to fix anything until she got paid. I'm not the one to rush and bust my ass to take care of a bunch of issues. And you didn't pay me all my money, Sharina said. Still, Patrice wanted to stay. She liked living above her mama and thought the apartment could be nice. Then Patrice's manager at Cousin Sub's cut back her hours and she lost what little leverage she had. Dang. After Sharina served her the eviction notice, Patrice couldn't catch up. She promised to give Serena her tax one, but by the time it was too late. Belinda, the payee, and Sharina's new best friend had called asking for a place, and Sharina jumped at the opportunity. Patricia's place would be available in a few weeks, Sharina promised. Damn, Sharina, Sharina, These folk. After two months without a working bathtub or sink, with a barely working toilet, Doreen called, decided to call a plumber herself. Uh, well, having paid for a plumber the first time things got stopped up, Sherina was not keen to do so again. And after what had happened at 32nd Street, Doreen knew better than to call a building expected. The plumber charged $150 to snake out the pipes. He concluded that the plumbing system was old and vulnerable and advised Doreen to catch everything she could from going down the sink. The first thing Doreen did after the man left was to run a hot bath and soak in it for an hour. Doreen decided to deduct the 150 from the rent. Damn, that never works, man. When Shireen responded by saying that would earn her an addiction notice, Doreen went ahead and withheld it all over the rent. If she was going to get evicted, she might as well save her money to put toward the next move. It was a common strategy amongst cash-strapped renters, Because the rent took almost all of her paycheck, families sometimes had to initiate a necessary eviction that allowed them to save enough money to move to another place. One landlord's loss was another landlord's gain. If Doreen had to move, she knew she wouldn't be able to find a much cheaper place especially for three adults and five children, eight people. At the time, median rent for a two-bedroom apartment in Milwaukee was $600. 10% of the units rented at or below $480, and 10% rented at or above $750. A mere $270 separated some of the cheapest units in the city and some of the most expensive. That meant that rent in some of the worst neighborhoods was not drastically cheaper than rent in much richer neighborhoods. For example, in the city's poorest neighborhoods, where at least 40% of families live below the poverty line, median rent for two-bedroom apartments was only $50 less than the citywide median. Sharina put it like this, A two-bedroom is a two-bedroom is a two-bedroom. This had long been the case. When tenements began appearing in New York City in the mid-1800s, rent in the worst loans was 30% higher than in uptown. In the 1920s and 30s, rent for dilapidated housing in black ghettos of Milwaukee and Philly and other northern cities exceeded that for better housing in white neighborhoods. As late as 1960, rent in major cities was higher for blacks and for whites in similar accommodations. The poor did not crowd in the slums because of cheap housing. They were there and this was especially true of the black poor simply because they were allowed to be. Landlords at the bottom of the market generally did not lower rents to meet demands and avoid the cost of all those mispayments and evictions. There were costs to so avoiding those costs too. For many landlords, it was cheaper to deal with the expense of eviction than to maintain their properties. You hear that? It's cheaper to go ahead and deal with the expense of evictions than to maintain their properties. It was possible to skimple on maintenance if tenants were perpetually behind and many poor tenants would be perpetually behind because their rent was too high. Tenants able to pay their rent in full each month could take advantage of legal protections designed to keep their housing safe and decent. Not only could they summon a building inspector without fear of eviction, but they also had the right to withhold rent without certain payments being paid, repairs being made. But when tenants fell behind, these protections dissolved. Tenants in arrears were barred from withholding or escrowing rent. And they tempted eviction if they filed a report with the building inspector. It was not that low income renters didn't know their rights, they just knew those rights were cost them. I think calling a building inspector is only going to cause more problems, Doreen told Patrice. It does, Patrice answered. She can put us out if we call a building inspector. What Patrice meant was that Sherina could evict because Doreen had violated the terms of release. Patrice and her kids were unauthorized boarders and she likely would if DNS were phoned. When tenants relinquish protections by falling behind in their rent or otherwise breaking their apartment at rental agreement, landlords can respond by neglecting repairs. Or as Sherina put it to tenants, If I give you a break, you give me a break. Tenants could trade their dignity and children's health for a roof overhead. Between 2009 and 2011, nearly half of all renters in Milwaukee experienced a serious and lasting housing problem. Damn. More than one in five lived with a broken window, a busted appliance, or mice cockroaches or rats for more than three days one third experienced clogged plumbing that lasted more than a day and one in ten spent at least a day without heat African American households were the most likely to have these problems as were those where children slept the average rent was the same whether an apartment had housing problems or did not who fell behind either had to accept unpleasant degrading and sometimes dangerous housing conditions or be evicted but from a business point of view this arrangement could be lucrative the four-family property that included Doreen's and lamar's apartments was Sharina's most profitable her second most profitable property was arlene's place on 13th street in Sharina's portfolio her worst properties yielded her biggest returns. We're going to finish this chapter, man. It's only a couple pages left. But you see how treacherous it is, man. How trash it is. <sighs> Shortly after Doreen told Shireen that she would be withholding her rent, Natasha discovered she was four months pregnant. When she told her mom, and Doreen laughed and said, I told you so. She had noticed the changes during Natasha had tried to ignore. Doreen was thrilled. I'm about to be a proud grandmama again, she crowded. Natasha's boyfriend was thrilled. A new pregnancy, legitimate or otherwise, was something to celebrate. Unless she were a young woman trying to live free and independent. Natasha was devastated. It's probably a big-headed boy, Doreen teased. I don't see how in the world I got pregnant. I don't even like pregnant stomachs. Natasha and Malik have been dating for about a year. They had met at cousin subs when Malik worked with Patrice. He was shorter and darker than Natasha with cornrows and a strong face. He had a gentle way about him. And although he was 33, Jesus, this would be his first kid. Natasha liked him okay, but her heart still belonged to Tay gunned down in a botched robbery two years earlier when he was 17. In her purse, she still carried his funeral program, which listed Natasha as a special lady friend among his survivors. Ruby was crazy about that boy too, and sometimes when Natasha was prodding, she would tell Tay stories, and Natasha listened quietly. She would smile like older people. Do when they put some distance between themselves and pain. In those moments, it was as if some cool force had whizzed a vice between the sisters and sprung the crank, propelling Natasha beyond her years. Per Hengston family tradition, Patrice would be the one to name the baby. Malik had other plans. When Natasha told Doreen and Patrice that Malik wanted to name to be Malik Jr. if it was a boy, they scoffed. We don't do juniors, Doreen said. We messed up once. I hate that I didn't I did that. CJ was named after his father. But so the family wouldn't have to utter that man's name. They shortened Caleb Jr. to CJ. <laughs> If Natasha had to be a mother, she knew this much. She was not going to bring her baby into that house. Now that she was pregnant, she worried more about the apartment and about where they would go if Shireen decided to evict them. But Doreen had carried the family on her back before, and Natasha believed she would do it again. Her mama, she strong, Natasha said. She has got us out of her way. She's gotten us out of way worse situations than this. I mean, from shelters, living on the street, churches, cars. (laughs) I got a lot of faith in my mama. And I don't know how the hell you have so much faith in your mama. I guess you don't know any better. That's okay, kid. Yeah, we've been on the street a few times. My mother, she's always had it. Only this time, Natasha didn't like her mama's plan. Ever since learning about upcoming family reunion in Brownsville, Tennessee, Doreen had been thinking about moving the family down there. Patrice liked the idea she was done with Milwaukee. This is a dead city, she said, full of crackheads and prostitutes. Natasha didn't want to take her baby away from his father. Doreen and Patrice didn't think this was a legitimate concern. He's not dependable, Doreen said, but Malik... Had been acting extra dependable since learning he was going to be a dad, pulling double shifts, saving the money, bringing Natasha food, and looking for an apartment for the three of them. The truth was that Doreen and Patrice didn't expect much from Malik, not because of anything he had done, but because of their own experiences with men. Patrice's and Natasha's father had left the ring. Ruby and CJ's dad was in prison and the father of Patrice's children played a negligible role in their lives and her current boyfriend had recently put her through the d- dining room table Jesus Doreen and Patrice did not see why a man a man, needed to be involved in the family decisions about where to raise a child let alone what to name it said Doreen to Natasha there was no one around to rub my stomach when they were kicking me said Patrice, we didn't have a daddy my kids don't have a daddy And your kids don't need a daddy. Someone from the doctor's office called. I gotta come back in for another ultrasound, Natasha told Doreen. Getting off the phone. They said they found something hiding. What do you mean they found something hiding? Hiding like behind the baby. Doreen gasped. Natasha, are you going to have twins? But I don't want no babies, Natasha stomped her foot. Too late to say that now, Doreen laughed. That's too much. Natasha slunk down on the couch and Coco jumped in her lap. Coco, come here. Mama's having a bad day. Doreen tried to cheer her up. I'm going to make sure you get a very big room removed, she said, down the hall from me. Maybe downstairs. Yeah, I hope we get a house like we had on 32nd. That would be a blessing, Natasha said, stroking Coco. Yes, it would. Doreen turned to Ruby who had been sitting quietly on the floor, holding her knees to her chest. What do you think, Ruby girl? Want to move? Of course, Ruby said. I hate this house. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes chapter six. Situation with her and kids and a perpetual cycle with her. Sure